Oh, well, we have a speaker today that I am very excited about. Uh, Dr. Joe Rigney is coming to us uh, from Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, and he has gotten his PhD from University of Chester in the United Kingdom. Uh, Dr. Rigney is also a pastor. He's a pastor at Cities Church in St. Paul, and he's written many books that I think I will be looking at. I just looked at them on the internet and they look very interesting. One is called Live Like a Narnian, and the others are The Things of Earth, Lewis and the Christian Life, and Strangely Bright. Oh, and also, Can We Love God and Enjoy the World? And uh, Dr. Rigney lives in Minneapolis here with his wife and his three sons. So let's give him a warm welcome, Dr. Joe Rigney. Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to see you, except I can't see you because those lights are really bright and you have masks. Um, if you have a Bible, I don't know that you all do, um, I'm going to be in Psalm 139, and you're welcome to read along with it as I uh, read the psalm and then talk about it with you for a bit. So uh, let me pray one more time, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you for your grace. I pray for help now to open this passage, and uh, I pray for um, soft hearts, good soil, ready to receive the word and to be awakened to your reality. So give us grace now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, from that passage, I want to try to, with God's help, awaken you to the reality of the present situation. Okay? Like, I want you to wake up. The psalmist says, I awake and I'm still with you. I want you, I want me to wake up. So let's begin with a couple of observations about just the reality here right now. Number one, you are here and you are now. Here is a location word. It's a place word. You exist in a location, Minnesota, Chaska, Southwest Christian High School, that seat. And there's a realness about this place. There's a, a realness about reality. Like you're just here and reality is just there. It's objective and concrete and particular. It's resistant. That chair is holding you up. And reality is always confronting us with, with, its, with its whatness. Now, not only are you here, but you're also now. Now is a time word. Here's a place word. Now is a time word. You are in the present, which is the astounding place where eternity touches time. That's what the present is. It's where eternity touches time. It's that point, infinitesimal point where the past meets the future. Like you have a future. You had a past. But all of your living and thinking and enjoying and willing takes place only in the present, now. Now, I said, you are here and now. Now, what are you? Well, I think all of you are human beings. You're a person. You're created by God and for Him. You straddle the line between the physical world and the spiritual world. You have a body, like animals do, and you have a spirit, a soul, a mind, a heart, like angels do. You have this amazing, clunky, clumsy, breakable apparatus called a body, and through it, you take in the world through your senses, your eyes and your ears and your nose. And you have this invisible, mysterious, marvelous, and terrifying reality called a soul, which perceives and thinks and hopes and dreams and imagines and fears and likes and dislikes and loves and hates. So again, just come back. What do we know? What do I know? What do all of us know about the present situation? You, a human being, a person with a body and a soul, a mind and a heart, you are here and now. But you're not the only one who's here and now. According to Psalm 139, God also is here and now. The living God, the almighty maker of heaven and earth, is here and now. Psalm 139 is the great celebration in the Bible of God's omnipresence, His presence everywhere. And what we mean by that is God's omnipresence is the reality that wherever you go, wherever you go, God is totally there. The living God is present everywhere and every when, in all times and in all places. That means that wherever you are, 
The statement, God is here and now, is always true. Always. No exceptions. No place in all of reality where you can say, God's not here. That's the point of verses 7 to 10. If, you, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, Hades, the place of the dead, you're there. If I get up as early as possible and I travel as far as possible to the other side of the planet, the other side of the solar system, the other side of the galaxy, the other side of the universe, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. So no matter how high you go, no matter how low you go, no matter how far you go, God is there which means God is here, now. That's a basic, fundamental claim of Christianity. God is here and now, which means, as one theologian put it, we never speak about God behind His back. You never talk about God behind His back. If you try to talk about God behind His back, it's like taking His name in vain. As the psalmist, we are always live in his, living in, in His presence under His watchful eye. As the psalmist said, He searches us, He knows us. His eye was on you when you sat down in that seat. It will be on you when you stand up in a few minutes. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorites, wrote, We may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with Him. He walks everywhere incognito. Now, in saying that, we're not pantheists. Pantheism, maybe you've learned about that in one of your classes. Pantheism believes that the world is God, or God is the world, or that God is kind of like spread out in the world like a gas or a liquid. But Christianity teaches that He's totally present everywhere, but He's not identical to anything in His creation. He's, he's present in the world in the way that an author is present in His story. Like, that's what the Verse said, all the days ordained for me were written in a book when as yet there was none of them. Everything you see and hear and touch is sustained moment by moment by his word, by his imagination and his attention. And yet he's not limited or confined by any of it. He's transcendent, which means he's bigger than the world. And yet he's imminent, meaning he's present in the world. He's high and lifted up and yet near and close at hand, and this makes him quite frankly incomprehensible to us, meaning he's beyond your ability to understand. Your little mind, my little mind, cannot contain him. And yet he is the ultimate fact of reality, the absolute rock bottom reality, the thick center who pervades everything. As the prophet Isaiah says, he is God and there is no other. He is God, there is none like him. What's more, this ultimate and absolute God who's here and now has unlimited, follow me there, unlimited attention for each one of you, for each one of us. God's thoughts are so vast that they outnumber the sand, which means that if you try to contemplate this omnipresent God who has unlimited attention for you, you'll probably say, if that lands on you, if you wake up to that, you'll probably say, like the psalmist did, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I can't attain it. So then, I just want you to keep in mind at the beginning here two truths. 
You are here and now. And God, the eternal, omnipresent, personal author of all, is also here and now. But I wonder if you heard something else in Psalm 139. God's not just here and now. He is here and now, and he's after you. He's searching us. He's knowing us. He's discerning our thoughts, acquainting himself with everything about you. Before you speak, he knows your mind completely and totally. Like every word that you spoke today. Just think about it. Every word you spoke today, God knew before it hit your tongue. What's more, this God makes demands of us. Not just any demands. He's, he's not a tax collector asking for a percentage of your time. He's not like, give me 10% and leaves the rest to you. Instead, as your creator, he demands everything, all of you. Like he formed you in your mother's womb. He knit you together. He wove your body and your soul into a unified whole. He is the maker and you are the made. He is the potter. You are the pot. He is the author. You are his character and therefore he has all rights all claims to you and everything you have and so as you sit here and now the almighty maker of heaven and earth is laying claim to your ultimate devotion and affection and that's scary quite frankly like lots of people don't like that lots of people would be very happy if there was some kind of life force sort of star wars style flowing through the universe making you feel warm and fuzzy when you want to think that there's more to reality than just matter in motion. But that life force is a tame God. He gives us the thrill of religion, but none of the cost. He's there if you want him, but he's not pursuing you or making demands because life forces aren't really he's or she's. Life force is an it. So some people are like, I don't really want a life force either. I'd rather have, but instead of wanting a father in heaven, they want a grandfather in heaven. This is another Lewis insight, right? Grandfather in heaven who just kind of sits around and thinks, I just want everyone to have a grand old time. I don't really care what you do. But God is not a senile benevolence who just wants to see young people enjoying themselves. The God of Psalm 139, the God who is and who is here and now, is neither a tame life force nor a senile grandfather, but he is alive He's pulling at the other end of the cord. He may be coming at you at an infinite speed. He's the hunter, the king, the husband, and he's not indulgent or soft. He is the great interferer, insisting that because he made us, he knows what's best for us. Like, Look at verse 5. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. He boxes you in. He surrounds you. He lays his hand on you. He pursues and interrupts. He confronts and he challenges. He is a lion and he is not tame. So three basic facts. You're here and now. God, your maker is here and now. And this God, the living God, is pursuing and making demands of you. And that yields a fourth truth. Every moment of every day we are confronted with a choice. Either you can embrace Psalm 139 as reality, as good news, and surrender ourselves to the eternal, omnipresent, and pursuing God, 
or you can vainly try to hide from him, from him, to resist him, to reject his demands, okay? In other words, here's the deal. Psalm 139 is true. It's just true. Just period, end of story. It's just true. And you can either embrace it as good news or you can resist it as bad news. Like God's omnipresent pursuit can either be life and joy to you or it can be death to you. Like you can suffocate yourself by attempting to assert your own independence in the face of his absolute presence. So God's omnipresence is a fact and it will either be life and light or oppression and destruction. It will either be heaven or it will be hell. And how you respond to it makes all the difference. And so what that means is that while we're always in God's presence, we're also constantly, every moment of every day, being called to come into God's presence, to unveil ourselves to His view, to embrace His searching, to embrace His knowing of us, His hemming in of us as good news, as life. And here's the reality I know for every one of you, because I know for me, there are times when we are very, very reluctant to do this. Like we, we want to keep our guard up. Some of you may be feeling this right now. You may want to keep your guard up lest God's voice become unmistakable. Lewis again mentions the sort of fellow who prays quietly lest God actually hear him, which he and poor man never intended. And often this is because, quite frankly, we're afraid. We, like we know, like you know, if you open the door too wide, who knows what God might show us about ourselves? Like, like we can be terrified of being known. We read, you searched me and known me, you know everything about me, every word, every thought, and that's terrifying. Because we, you and I, you look down into the recesses of your heart, those dark caves, and you don't know all what's down there. And that's scary. And so if you come into God's presence, and if you open the door to Him, like what if He goes down there? And worse, what if He brings something back up? Something that we've been trying very, very hard to bury. Like we resonate with verse 11. This is what the psalmist says. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. In other words, there's, this, there's ways in which what we want is, we want it to be so dark that no one can see who we really are. In our shame, in our rebellion, in our pain, we want to cover ourselves in darkness and hide from the all-seeing, all-knowing, omnipresent, and pursuing God. And so instead of unveiling, instead of embracing the goodness of God's omnipresence, we try to do things halfway. I, I, I think this is probably true for a number of you in here. I'm just guessing. I don't know any of you. I know maybe one of you. We try to dabble and splash at the edge of the ocean, but we won't dive in and go for a swim. It's like, kind of like this. It's kind of like, God, you can come live in my house, but God, you need to remember this is my house, okay? 
You may, you may come in and live, and that's your bedroom, but you're not allowed to open that closet. That's my closet, and what's in there is totally my business. It's none of your business. You're not allowed to open that closet. That's mine. Like, we want to preserve some area of our lives upon which God has no claim, some realm of my own, which is none of his business. And what I'm trying to tell you right now is there is no such place. God claims everything. And he's very merciful, and he will forgive your many failures. He will not compromise with you. There is no bargaining with him. He's not claiming this much of your time or that much of your attention. He's not even claiming really all of your time and all of your attention. As I said a moment ago, he is claiming you. Like you. He wants you. All of it. The totality of who and what you are. That's his claim. And so you have a choice. Either you're going to come into his presence or you're going to try to run. And this is where, for me, C.S. Lewis has been very helpful. And so for the last few minutes here, I just want to give some practical help for how do we come into God's ever-present presence. This is, think, you might think of this actually as advice about how to pray, because that's what prayer really is, okay? Prayer is fundamentally about you coming into, voluntarily opening yourself to God's view. He sees you, and prayer is where you say, I want to be seen I want to be known. I know, you know me. I, I embrace it. I, I want it. That's what prayer is. It's the meeting of persons. You, as a person, meeting the absolute, utterly concrete, and full person, namely God himself. So, a few things here. How do you do it? Here's number one, okay? Come to God as you are, not as you ought to be. Like sometimes, I, this is, I'll speak for myself here, I'm reluctant to come to God because I know that my desires, what I want, are just out of whack. There's something I want, and I don't think I want it in the right way, and so like I might want it too much, um, I might want it in the, in, a, in the wrong way, and so I come to God, and I, and I kind of try to trick Him. I don't know if you've ever done this, okay? Like I pretend that I want other things more than I want what I really want in hopes that by wanting the other things, which I think God wants me to want, if I, want, if I say to God, I want those things more than I want this thing, you'll give me this thing. And Psalm 139 just says, that's ridiculous and foolish. You can't fool God. He's searched you and known you. He perceives your thoughts from afar. So what that means is come to him honestly as you are. Now, that might mean, this is what it means when I think I've, my desires are out of work, I come to him first in confession. Like, God, I think my desires are wrong here. I think I'm wanting it too much. I think I'm, I'm craving it. I think I'm, it's making me angry that I don't have whatever this thing is that I'm wanting. And so I'm coming to you and confessing that and asking you to forgive me and to reorient me, to correct me. But the first thing is you have to be honest about that. No pretense. No fakery, no trying to pretend to be something else. Number two. So come to God as you are. That's number one. Number two. Beware of vague guilt. Like I, I find that one of the main hindrances to unveiling before God is this vague cloud of guilt that hangs over me. 
vague guilt is really troublesome, okay? You cannot repent of vague sins. You can only repent of real sins, specific sins. All real sins are specific sins. So this means when you find yourself in a fog of vague guilt, one of the first things you should do is begin by asking God to show you the details. Like press into that, press through that smoke to see is there really a fire underneath that guilt? Is there really something? Have I done something? Thought something? Said something? Felt something that was wrong? If so, I want to confess that specific thing. If there's not, if you press through and you find there's not really, there's nothing, there's no there there. There's nothing underneath this vague sense of guilt. Then instead, treat that vague guilt like a buzzing in your noise. Try to endure it and move on. Something to be, it's something to be endured as you try to come into God's presence as opposed to something that you try to fix before you come into God's presence. That's number two. So beware of vague guilt. The flip side, though, is this. Number three, confess real sins specifically and quickly. Like sometimes you might be afraid to come into God's presence because you're, you feel guilty and you know why. Like you know why it is that you're reluctant to come into his presence. You want to avoid the conviction. And so there's moments when God is like hemming you in, like behind and before he's, he's boxing you in and then you're kind of hemming and hawing and dancing and making excuses and God's looking at you and basically saying, you know you're only wasting time. Like you, you know... You know in the end of the day, there's no getting around this. You know what it is that you did. And so in, in those kind of situations, the best solution is the simplest. If there's a specific sin in your life, confess it to God clearly, honestly, forthrightly, without using euphemisms and words that try to cover it up or minimize it. So that, this, this is what it means for me. Whenever I confess sin to God, I want to use Bible words for the sins, like God, I lied. Not, I haven't been quite honest. God, I got angry. Sinfully angry. Not, I kind of lost my cool. I stole that, God. Not, I used it without asking. So, I've lusted in my heart. I've committed immorality. I've envied that person. I've coveted her gifts. I'm full of bitterness. I'm, I hate him. I'm puffed up. I'm arrogant. Use Bible words for things rather than the fake words that try to excuse our sin. That's actually the fourth. Ask God to forgive you, not excuse you. Now, this is really important. There's a big difference, okay? Oftentimes, when we come into God's presence and we ask him to forgive us, what we're really asking him to do is to excuse us. But forgiveness and excusing are opposites. Forgiveness says, you did the evil thing, but I'm not going to hold it against you. Excusing says, oh, I see you couldn't help what you did. You didn't mean it, so it wasn't really your fault. See the difference? To excuse someone is to let someone off the hook because really they didn't belong on the hook in the first place. Like you don't blame someone for something that wasn't his fault. But when it comes to forgiveness, we, when we come to God for forgiveness, oftentimes we're trying to just satisfy ourselves with our excuses. 
We want God to accept our excuses. We want him to remember, hey, I kind of was tired that day, or I had a hard morning, and that's why I got angry, and we want him to let us off the hook. And so instead, when seeking God's forgiveness, set aside your excuses, set aside your blame shifting. If there's extenuating circumstances, if there were reasons that weren't your fault, God knows that. He sees it better than you do, and will take it into account. But at the end of the day, what's left over, like that little cancer of sin that's in your life, that's the thing that has to, f- to be repented of. That's what you have to bring to God. That's what he must and will forgive. Last thing, in our attempts to lay ourselves open to God's view, remember that self-examination is really God-examination. I love, I pray the final verses of Psalm 139 often. Search me, O God, know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now notice the movement there, okay? The psalm begins, you have searched me and known me, and then it ends, search me and know me. Do you see that? So, God, I know that this is true. You've searched it, you know it all, and then I'm asking you to continue to do it. The psalmist has embraced the reality, opened himself to who God is. And this means that you can go look, what's, what's down there? What am I like? What are there things I need to bring to you, God? Um, but self-examination is only safe when God's hands are on the reins, when God is the one who's doing the discerning and God's hand is leading us and holding us. So this is what this might look like, okay? Surrender, you surrender yourself to God. Give Jesus the keys to every room in your heart. No dark closet held back. No, you can't go in the basement. No basement corner off limits. The whole house belongs to him. So that you're surrendering everything to him and saying, Lord, if you want to knock the whole building down, do it. And then lay yourself before him and say, Lord, give me just enough self-knowledge. Help me to see myself enough that it can be useful to me. Like, like, God, I know that there may be deeper sins way down in the, in the dark places of my soul. There may be deeper things, and I'm not ready to deal with that yet. You know what I can handle. You know what's good for me. Help, but bring me the, the amount of self-knowledge that will be good for me, that I can repent of my sins or know what you require of me, do my obligations, my duties. And then having surrendered, having asked for that little daily dose of self-knowledge, You believe that God is with you, and he's for you, and you do what he's called you to do. You forget about yourself, and you do your work. I want to close um, with a story that C.S. Lewis tells about his wife, Joy, okay? And this is part of what I'm trying to get at for you. I hope this helps um, bring it together. Why, here's the question, why is God searching us? Why is he knowing us? Why is he hemming us in? Why is he laying his hand upon us? What does he really want? Here's the story that Lewis tells about his wife. Long ago, before we were married, she was haunted all one morning as she went about her work with the obscure sense of God, so to speak, at her elbow, demanding her attention. You ever had a moment like that? Kind of feel like, I think, I, yeah, he's, he's after me. There he is. Um, and of course, 
not being a perfected saint, she had the feeling that it would be a question of some unrepented sin or some duty that she left undone. And at last, she gave in and she faced him. But the message was, I want to give you something. And instantly she entered into joy. This is the great paradox we carry with us into God's presence. Like God is here and now. He demands all of us. But God is here and now, and he wants to give us everything. He's for us, not against us. He may not be safe. He's most definitely good. And he won't settle for half measures because he loves us and wants to give us himself. And he can't give us himself as long as we're full of ourselves. But if we give up ourselves, if we die to ourselves, then he will give us himself. And in giving us himself, he'll give us back ourselves. When we unveil in God's presence, we find that we become our true selves, stable, strong, full of life and joy, and conform to the image of his son from one degree of glory to another. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as these students go about their day, there would be moments of awakening when your presence would be so real, so manifest, so powerful, and so delightful to them that they would say with the psalmist, this is too much, it's too much. That your fatherly care for them, your fatherly care for them through Jesus would be so real that it would be the most real thing to them. It is the most real thing in fact, and we are so numb and dull and distracted. So grant them the grace of coming into your ever-present presence. In Jesus' name, amen.